Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, so today we have part two of our episode reviewing the best of the best from the Journal of Visceral and Elbow Surgery from 2022. As a brief reminder, we asked Dr. Bill Mallon, the editor-in-chief, to pick out his favorite articles. He picked some, and then we've invited the authors on to discuss their articles and to give you kind of a review of the highlights of 2022. So I'm here with Dr. Daniel Goltz, who is currently a resident at Duke, and he's headed into his fellowship next year at the Rothman Institute. And he's here to discuss his his article entitled, Short Stay After Shoulder Arthroplasty Does Not Increase 90 Readmission in Medicare Patients Compared with Privately Insured Patients. Dr. Goltz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're really happy to have you. So tell us what inspired you to do this study. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. It's a, it's a super simple study design answering a, a really simple question. And essentially, uh, it involves the Medicare inpatient only list. And this question of whether or not Medicare patients are equally appropriate for accelerated care pathways, essentially outpatient surgery in an ambulatory setting. And you and all our listeners know, you know, just as well as me that uh, shoulder arthroplasty is uh, on the inpatient only list for Medicare. And uh, it's kind of funny because at the time of publication for this article, it was actually being taken off the list, uh, but then was put back on it uh, later on. And so if you actually look back in the article, it talks a lot about actually how it's being taken off. And then that was uh, went back on essentially by CMS. But the, it's the whole idea of that. Uh, are Medicare patients similarly appropriate um, as privately insured patients that can already have outpatient shoulder arthroplasty done in an ambulatory setting? And so that was essentially our question is, uh, can we uh, are appropriately selected uh, Medicare patients based on their like socio-comorbidity level, uh, appropriately selected patients appropriate for an outpatient setting in ASC. Okay, so you've got your research question, then how did you do the study? Yeah, so uh, essentially uh, what we did um, was the first thing we had to do was develop essentially a proxy for same day outpatient surgery. Obviously, this is a relatively new thing on a larger scale. And uh, in order to compare uh, privately insured patients with Medicare patients, uh, obviously the Medicare patients did not undergo like same day discharge or anything like that. So we created a proxy that was essentially, we defined it as short stay. So discharge at least by post-operative day one. Um, and that was our proxy for true same day discharge. Uh, and that's an okay proxy. It's not perfect because when you're in an ambulatory setting, you can theoretically keep a patient for up to 24 hours after the surgery. But that essentially helps with a couple different things. It allows for a direct comparison of uh, outpatient ASC uh, patients with inpatients in terms of outcomes uh, based on whether they're Medicare or privately insured. Um, and it also helps with numbers a lot because uh, outpatient shoulder arthroplasty is a historically rare event. So we define this proxy of discharge at least by post-op day one as uh, essentially our marker for patients who historically may have been appropriate for same-day discharge, but were not for just because of maybe maybe surgeon comfort or discomfort uh, with the practice. 
Then what we did is we needed to build a cohort essentially. So we uh, uh, have built for prior studies, a large two institution cohort. So this is a collaboration with uh, Dr. Gergus uh, Nicholson Verma up at Rush. Uh, and we essentially looked at all the shoulder arthroplasties dating back to when electronic medical records were implemented up at Rush and at Duke. Uh, we had just over 4,700 uh, anatomic and reverse shoulder arthroplasties. Uh, and we divided them up uh, based on their insurance type and by whether or not they had a short or extended stay. And so that was essentially over the course of a little over a decade and across 19 surgeons. Now, this, this study is not as near and dear to my heart. I was, as a resident at Rush, I started building this registry at Rush. <laughs> so you may or may not have known this, but I published three papers as a resident using that. And I, I was really happy to see they've continued it and used it to do great stuff like this. So then tell us what you found. Yeah, so no complicated stats in this paper. Like it's literally the simplest stuff, just chi-square tests. That's I think one of the things that makes it compelling. Basically, we found a few things. So first off, uh, Medicare patients actually are sicker than privately insured patients on average. Um, that's probably not surprising to your listeners. Um, overall, reverses make up a, a higher readmission rate overall than uh, anatomic total shoulders by a factor of about two and a half. Uh, and then what we did was we found that there's actually no real difference in readmission rates between short and extended stay patients in either Medicare or privately insured patients. So no real difference in the readmission rates between the different stays. Uh, and then when you uh, actually uh, look within Medicare and privately insured patients, the readmission rates are about 1% higher overall for Medicare patients, regardless of whether you have like a short stay or an extended stay. Uh, and this increased readmission rate that you see in Medicare patients, it actually just appears to be the result of basically an increased likelihood of them undergoing a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, which itself has a higher complication rate. So it's not so much any like intrinsic characteristic or predisposition for Medicare patients themselves, actually. So that was the kind of compelling finding that we found. Is it's just that Medicare patients, on average, are more likely to undergo a reverse shoulder arthroplasty. So if, you know, on a risk-adjusted level, uh, Medicare patients appear to be equally appropriate for accelerated care pathways, at least based on this data. Okay, so now one of the things hiding in everything you just said is that there's a higher readmission rate for reverses. And I think this is actually something that's known. I think it's been previously published. But what, what do you think accounts for this higher readmission rate? Like, why are the reverses more likely? Is it just because they're sicker or is it something inherent to the procedure? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. We actually broke down the reasons for readmission. And, and just to back up, you know, it's there's a reason why we chose 90-day readmissions as our, our essentially outcome of interest. Um, as surgeons, we don't really care much about 90-day readmissions, right? Like, we care about how the patient actually did, like, at two years or five years. Like, do they love their shoulder? Or do they hate it? Um, unfortunately, CMS, uh, at least in the hip and knee arthroplasty world, has incentivized surgeons to care about readmissions. And so uh, this is us just essentially anticipating that at some point, shoulder arthroplasty will be tracked in a similar way uh, by 90-day readmissions. And so to get to your question of, of why that is higher for reverses, I think there's, there's two reasons. First off, uh, I think there's some, uh, basically from a uh, prosthesis 
perspective, uh, instability is higher in uh, reverses overall. So that makes up a fairly high percentage of our overall 90-day readmissions. But uh, keep in mind, 90-day unplanned readmissions can be for medical reasons as well, like you said. And so uh, essentially, you know, it doesn't really matter from a CMS perspective whether the readmission happened on day five for a wound dehiscence or day 89 for, you know, maybe like a cellulitis somewhere else on the body. Like it still counts as a readmission against you. And so if you have older patients, uh, and on average, Medicare patients are older than privately insured patients, stands to reason that they're going to have higher rates of readmissions just because they have a higher socio uh, uh, comorbidity burden overall. So I think it was 19 of the 30 Ellickshauser comorbidities um, were uh, had a higher prevalence in Medicare patients overall. Okay, now the, the other thing that I think is it's hiding in the paper, and it's not, I think, your primary point just because the numbers are smaller, but you have Medicaid and compensate workers' comp um, populations, and you have remission rates for them, and interesting enough, both of them are way higher than yeah. either the private or the Medicare rates. What did, what did you, what were your thoughts on that? I mean, I know that they're smaller numbers for sure than the rest of your cohort. We didn't talk a ton about them. And, and I'll be totally honest is we weren't quite sure how to interpret them. And there's a lot of literature that does show that um, these patient groups do have higher readmission rates overall. I think that one of the things that we as a group are always super careful about is recognizing that um, insurance status can sometimes be a proxy for socioeconomic and sociodemographic parameters that can make patients that essentially intrinsically a little bit higher risk. And so in all of the work that we've done, whether it's this paper or some predictive modeling stuff that we've done uh, elsewhere, is we want to be like super careful about summarizing patients, whether it's by, you know, something like insurance status, because that's probably just like a, a pretty poor proxy for a lot of other things that are potentially going on in their life that may make them higher risk. So it's not something, it's something that we reported in this paper, but didn't really dive too much into. But there, there is a lot of literature out there that shows that uh, these patient groups, when you just look at a very superficial marker like insurance status being Medicaid or workers' compensation, that they do have uh, higher 90-day uh, readmission rates. So where do we go from here? What's your guys' next steps? Where do, where, where, where do you take this? Yeah, so I think there's two things. So the first one is from a policy perspective. I think that, you know, although it's not conclusive, our paper does provide some evidence that appropriately selected patients should be eligible for outpatient surgery in an ambulatory setting. And that doesn't mean all patients, but you know we want Medicare patients to enjoy the same access, the same benefits as their, prim uh, their privately insured counterparts. There's, there's really no reason, as long as appropriate, there's appropriate risk adjustment, uh, that they shouldn't be able to enjoy the benefits of that similarly to private, privately insured patients. But the second part of it is the risk adjustment side, right? Like you have to have a really good idea for which patients are appropriate because for sure a lot of Medicare patients are less appropriate, um, but there's, there are some that are appropriate. And so figuring out which those patients actually are is important. Um, and there's a variety of kind of predictive tools out there. We've published some uh, 
I think Quinn Throckmorton down at Campbell Clinic has uh, published some as well. Uh, there's there's a variety of really good kind of subjective and objective tools that help to stratify patients based on their risk and appropriateness. Ultimately, I think at this point, deciding whether or not a patient is appropriate for an ambulatory setting is more of a judgment call. There's certain protocols that you can build in conjunction with maybe your anesthesiologist and the facility to help decide that. Eventually, though, the direction we think this is probably going is, unfortunately, payers will increasingly probably try to dictate what the setting is that you'll do surgery. And, and they'll essentially try to say, listen, you should really do this patient in an inpatient setting or in an outpatient setting. And as surgeons, like we want to be able to have data and have ammunition to be able to push back against those decisions. And so what we've tried to do is create a way, create ways in this paper and in others to essentially calculate patients' appropriateness for outpatient shoulder arthroplasty. And that's something where, you know, if you publish it in the primary literature, that can give surgeons data to push back against some of those decisions that we think are going to start happening more and more frequently. We're obviously not yet, there yet, uh, but we see it potentially in the future. Well, thanks so much for coming on and discussing your research. It's um, It's been great to have you guys on, and we're um, looking forward to see what you accomplish next. I'm here with Dr. Richard Puzzatello of TUS, who's going to discuss his article entitled, Patients with Limited Health Literacy Have Worse Preoperative Function, Pain Control, and Experience Prolonged Hospitalizations Following Shoulder Arthroplasty. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dr. Chalmers. I'm excited to be here and to discuss our interesting findings. Oh, we're excited to have you here. So. Start, start us off at the beginning. What inspired you and your collaborators to do this particular study? So I, I train in Boston, and here in Boston, we, we work with a very diverse patient groups. Um, we train at two different hospitals. One is a uh, level one trauma center in an urban setting. We provide for a largely underserved population. And one of our other sites is an orthopedic specialty hospital that does not have an IED. And we see somewhat more of an affluent patient group there with what is, at least we perceive as uh, greater levels of health literacy. And working with these diverse patient populations that are on the opposite ends of the health literacy spectrum, it requires us to learn to effectively communicate and uh, discuss treatment plans and diagnoses in different ways that uh, patients with different levels of understandings. Um, and this has really been the impetus for our department to investigate how uh, such dynamics in terms of uh, various social determinants of health and health literacy affects outcomes in the orthopedic setting. Okay, great. So you've, you come from this background where you see multiple patient populations and then you have this idea to see how it affects, you know, how the patients do. So tell us then, how did you do this particular study to investigate that phenomenon? Yeah, so we're looking at um, patients that are undergoing elective primary inpatient uh, shoulder arthroplasty, both anatomic and reverse. And uh, this is a prospective study where we uh, administered a, a screening tool known as the Brief Health Literacy Screening Tool to all patients preoperatively. And basically, this tool uh, is four questions, and it asks questions in the domains of how comfortable patients are with um, completing at their own healthcare uh, forms with understanding both written and spoken uh, health information. And it synthesizes these answers into a 20 point score. And if patients are under the score of 17, uh, that signifies that they have a limitation in terms of their health literacy. 
And so um, we enrolled all these patients prospectively. Uh, we assessed their health literacy. Uh, we collected several preoperative parameters, such as um, their ACS scores, uh, range of motion. And then we looked at, uh, primarily for our outcomes, we looked at uh, length of stay um, after their uh, inpatient shoulder arthroplasty. And then we also looked at inpatient costs, uh, disposition to rehab, um, total opioid consumption. And um, we uh, then compared the two different patient groups, those with limited health literacy and those with normal health literacy. And uh, we found some interest very interesting things. So tell us, what, what are some of your main kind of primary findings comparing these two groups, the low and the high health literacy groups? So among our 230 patients that we enrolled, um, about 58 of them had limitations in health literacy, which is a quarter. And at baseline, there was inequivalencies in the number of patients with low health literacy that reported uh, higher numbers of self-reported allergies, as well as a greater proportion used opioids preoperatively. Additionally, there was trends towards significance in a uh, marker of social, socioeconomic deprivation. Um, those with health literacy were more socially deprived than those with high health literacy. And uh, there was more medical comorbidities in the low health literacy group. Um, in terms of our preoperative PROs and range of motion, we found that patients with low health, health literacy has significantly worse ASES scores, uh, about 10 points separated the two groups. And this is an important finding in and of itself because it suggests that these patients might have uh, greater barriers to accessing care. And as a result, they're presenting to us with more advanced pathology and greater suffering. And I think that signifies that we are charged as providers to identify these patients, those that might be suffering, and uh, making sure that they know the treatments that are available with them to help uh, improve their quality of life. Um, and then in terms of our perioperative outcomes, those with low health literacy has significantly greater length of stay after their surgery. Um, those with high health literacy stayed about 1.84 days on average versus 1.57 days uh, compared to those with low health literacy. And this is about six and a half hours longer. Uh, this might not sound clinically relevant, um, but when considering uh, how we're transitioning shoulder arthroplasty to the outpatient setting, a 6.5 hour difference might have very meaningful impact on whether a patient can be safely discharged home on the same day of surgery or not. Um, in terms of overall uh, cost of the encounter, uh, we did not find any significant differences between groups. And we also did not find any significant differences in terms of inpatient opioid consumption or disposition to rehab. Uh, and then on our linear regression model, we found that while controlling for other possibly confounding variables, um, limited health literacy was still significantly predictive of uh, prolonged length of stay postoperatively. You know, there's uh, there's a, a, a lot to go through there. I mean, I think the allergy finding is particularly interesting. You know, there's been prior studies associating a higher number of allergies with adverse outcomes and joint replacement. And it's a little bit unclear is that because those patients are atopic, is it because there are certain kinds of patients? Certainly, your results seem to suggest the patients with allergies that that may be some degree, to some degree a marker of something larger. What do you make of that finding? How do you how do you correlate those two things together? Yeah, it, it might be that um, these patients don't quite understand exactly what an allergy truly is, and it just might be a um, known side effect of the medication. And so they might be reporting this when in reality they could safely receive the medication. 
Um, alternatively, it could be that they uh, have a predilection to catastrophize their um, the the effect that a medication has on them, thinking that it's uh, such a severe side effect that they cannot receive it, despite the benefit that it might provide them. Now, what are your thoughts on the preoperative severity of symptoms? Like, how how can we explain that patients who have low health literacy can't raise their arm as high? Do you think that that has to do with the severe disease when they present for treatment? Do you think that has to do with some interaction between the patient's prior treatment? Yeah, help us understand that. Yeah, I I think that it has to do with more advanced pathology due to delays in accessing care. Um, now that's something that we can't prove. We don't. We did not analyze the imaging to look at degree of uh, degenerative changes or. Uh, rotator cuff integrity, things of that nature. But um, I really think that it's one of the main issues here is that there is a clear barrier to care and um, health literacy might represent a disparity, a healthcare disparity that we need to try to intervene upon. Well, that's that I think is the, where the rubber hits the road when you say intervene. So help us understand, has there, there been prior literature to show whether this is a modifiable risk factor or is this more of an inherent characteristic? So there is literature in the lower extremity uh, joint arthroplasty uh, realm that shows that it is a modifiable characteristic. Um, through uh, more intensive uh, communication strategies and um, additional resource, resource preparation, these patients can um, understand their pathologies, their uh, available treatments, as well as post-operative protocols uh, uh, more reliably if an additional time is spent with them. And I think that's really where this study uh, can help us change a lot and really help treat these patients better is that there's several tactics that we can use to provide better care. Um, at our institute, we often have uh, a nurse navigator or a case manager meet with patients preoperatively to help discuss things such as expectations postoperatively, as well as um, post-operative disposition and uh, social support in the home setting um, because you don't want to have these people go through these surgeries and not know what to expect and then get home and realize they're not able to care for themselves and end up being a bounce back to your emergency department. Uh, additionally, when you're meeting with them preoperatively, um, it's important that you really try to identify whether or not they uh, completely comprehend the information you're providing them with. Um, one of the most simple ways of doing so is just using the teachback method. Um, that's something that we do frequently with our um, more uh, socially deprived patients is we explain some of them and then take a moment and ask them, explain back to you in their own words what they make of what was just said. Well, certainly those all sound like great strategies. Um, I think that this is a it's a great step in the right direction for us to provide better care for a challenging population. and. What I think I love the most about this study is it gives us a new vocabulary to describe these patients. You know, because these patients have been given various names, I think, by providers we don't like. But I think to describe a group of patients as having low health literacy helps to give us hope that we could improve that with the right interventions. So I congratulate you and your co-authors on this research, and I'm excited to see what you'll accomplish with this in the future. All right, so we're here with Dr. Nitin Jain from UT Southwestern to discuss his article entitled Obesity and Sex Influence Fatty Infiltration of the Rotator Cuff, the Row and Moon Cohorts. Dr. Jain, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. All right, so this is a super interesting study. So tell us what inspired you to first look into this topic. 
Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, uh, you know, we, we had the advantage of having two very well characterized cohorts. Uh, uh, one is the uh, Rogue Trader Cup Outcomes Workgroup or the Rogue Cohort, and the second is the Moon uh, Cohort. And there have been studies previously published from both of these cohorts. So, <clears throat> uh, um, fatty infiltration, uh, as you know, is one of the most important uh, prognosticators of, of uh, better or worse outcomes in patients with rotator cuff tears. And although uh, uh, it's been well characterized that patient, this is a phenomenon that almost exclusively happens in patients with rotator cuff tears beyond the uh, uh, size of the tear or, or a patient's age, there isn't a whole lot known about what uh, is associated fat infiltration. And that was predominantly the driving factor behind uh, uh, the driving force behind this paper. I agree with Pete. Super interesting paper, and I can't wait to get into the details. But for all of our listeners, I'm hoping everyone you know has, who has listening to this has read the paper. But if not, tell us how did you do the study? Sure. Um, so uh, we we again harnessed the. Uh, a power of two cohorts. And what that does is it, it gives us two well-characterized cohorts, as well as gives us a larger sample size in terms of reaching more uh, 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 meaningful conclusions. Um, <clears throat> our interest was two primary variables, which was body mass index and fatty infiltration. But again, we do know that there are the other known factors that influence fatty infiltration. So we adjusted for... Uh, um, <clears throat> size of tear as well as age, uh, uh, all of the known factors that are associated with fatty infiltration. And we assessed if uh, 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 sex and body mass index, and body mass index we categorize according to the WHO criteria uh, to see if they are independently associated with uh, uh, fatty infiltration of the rotator cuff. And what did you find? What are the associations that are demonstrated here? So, you know, we were uh, extremely uh, surprised from our findings, although there's some data that exists that <clears throat> body mass index may be associated with cuff tears. Uh, these are usually much smaller studies. What we really found was there was a linear relationship uh, 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 for patients that were uh, uh, overweight, but more so for patients that were obese, they were almost three times uh, uh, as likely to have a, a fatty infiltration as compared to those that uh, uh, that were of normal body mass index. Uh, uh, also, what was more surprising to us was that uh, women were almost five times more likely to have fatty infiltration than their male counterparts. And this is data that I, I believe has not, it, 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 you know, there have been some smaller studies showing uh, uh, that females may have higher uh, incidence of fatty infiltration, but I, this was very surprising. And I think one of the first studies to characterize such a high preponderance <clears throat> of fatty infiltration in women versus men. Uh, um, it is, it is, and, and I guess I can get into what these conclusions mean uh, in your subsequent questions, but that's, those are the two main findings of the study.
So I, I also found that data point on females versus males super interesting. Why do you think that is? What What's the hypothesis in terms of why you found what you found? Yeah, so we don't exactly know why exactly why women uh, were found to have five times as much fatty infiltration as compared to males. And this is adjusting for other factors such as age and size of tears, uh, which we could imagine can confound this relationship. Uh, there are some uh, hypotheses, uh, uh, one of them being uh, potentially differences in uh, peripheral fat distribution uh, that differs between men and women. Uh, it could also be, uh, these are most of our cohort was more uh, uh, um, in the older age group or patients that were 50 and older. Uh, so it's very po possible that uh, hormonal changes in, in, in women uh, have something to do with a higher incidence of fat infiltration. So the answer to your question is we don't really know. There are some studies that we're currently doing where we are trying to understand these mechanisms better, where we are actually collecting uh, saliva samples and blood samples on patients, trying to understand the genetics as well as uh, <clears throat> some of the other biomarkers uh, uh, to see what's actually uh, uh, causing this relationship. But uh, we don't really understand. All we can say from the study is that women are much more likely than men to develop fat infiltration, but the mechanism of that remains unclear. Super interesting. Now, one other concept Pete and I wanted to ask you is that a lot of us discuss the concepts of fatty atrophy and fatty infiltration as unique or as separate concepts. Were you able to separate them out here? And if so, how? So we only looked at fatty infiltration in this study. Uh, atrophy of the muscle is something we are planning to look at separately. Uh, but in this, this study is solely focused on fatty infiltration. But how'd you tease that out? How'd you decide what is fatty infiltration versus what is fatty atrophy to include them in the study? Sure. So all of these patients uh, had a standardized MRI assessment. So all of them underwent an MRI. And that's why we have slightly lower numbers since the entire cohort did not have MRI. So we only took the patients that had MRIs. And uh, 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 this the, the MRI read was done by two uh, shoulder experts by consensus read. And, you know, there is the cl uh, classic uh, Gutierrez classification for fat infiltration. And we have the uh, Warner classification for uh, atrophy of the muscle. So all of those were read in a standardized fashion. And that's how we determine which patients had fat infiltration versus not. Now, there's a growing body of evidence now that supports that there's the systemic milieu really plays a role in the risk for retire after rotated cuff repair. And we've seen it now with cholesterol and with a, with, with a bunch of other factors. And I, I think this paper is kind of another brick in the wall, so to speak, to help us understand the importance of biology in our treatment of cuff tears and not just the biomechanics. Mm -hmm. My question for you is, do you think that means this means that obese patients need to be treated more expeditiously? So if we have an obese patient that comes into clinic, should we say then this patient is someone we should push more towards the operating room because the infiltration is going to occur more quickly? I guess the question here is, how do we take this information into our practice? Do women need to be treated more, more like with a greater concern that the tear will become irreparable more quickly? Is it modifiable with weight loss? What are, what are your thoughts on what the next steps are basically around translating this? 
Sure, uh, and in the in the you know we discussed the findings on on uh, uh, females versus males, and and a similar concept applies to obesity as well, where we don't clearly understand what the mechanism here is because shoulder, uh, unlike uh, uh, the knee, is a non-weight bearing joint, so it's unclear why body mass index is related to fatty infiltration, but it could be again to do with the uh, distribution of fat and how that affects the cuff. In terms of clinical implications, it's, it's, it's very clear that uh, 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 we would want to be more aggressive uh, in patients that have a higher uh, propensity to developing uh, fatty infiltration versus those that are not, because we do know that once the muscle undergoes fatty infiltration, the outcomes of treatment are worse. Uh, 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 so clearly that can be an inference uh, that can be drawn. Now, uh, uh, we are all aware that it's, it's unclear whether <clears throat> uh, uh, surgery or non-operative treatment or e either one of them necessarily uh, uh, halts the progression of fatty infiltration, but uh, we do for a fact know that it's, 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 it's much harder or the outcomes are, are, are suboptimal once the muscle undergoes fatty infiltration. All right, so tell us, where do we go from here with this research and for future areas of research in this area? Yeah, I think this, this study is, 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 I would say, just uh, in some ways uh, uh, breaking the surface of what seems to be a much larger issue. I think the, the importance of fatty infiltration is very well established, but the mechanisms and, the, uh, and what's really causing it is unclear. So the next step here really is to understand uh, why or what are the mechanisms behind these variables. And <clears throat> I think as opposed to uh, uh, the conventional uh, focus on biomechanics, uh, uh, the biology or the biology of both the tear and the fatty infiltration has 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 largely been understudied in the in, understudied in the cuff area, and and I, I think that's what would what will eventually lead to new discoveries as well as new therapeutics. So I think that really is the direction for the future. Well, it's a great study, and um, we really congratulate you for this. And I do think that people are going to talk about this in the future. You know, do we need to worry about the risk of irreparability becoming higher in patients where we know fatty infiltration sets in more quickly? And this this is going to become, I think, one more factor in our algorithm, one more little factor to consider as we decide how to treat these patients. So I think it's a great study. We really appreciate you coming on to talk about it and um, hope you have a great night. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all the time we have for this podcast. Thanks so much to all of our guests uh, for coming on and discussing their studies. For all of our Shoulder Noble listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time.